We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Facebook Live with the Global Institute for Tomorrow's CEO and founder, uh, Chandra Nair. Thank you. Um, so, for those that have uh, not tuned in before, uh, today we will be um, having a session with Chandran uh, to talk about some of the issues that are top of his mind. Um, for this session in particular, it is uh, our session is called Keeping the Moral Compass, um, and the session is about ethics, really. Um, and prior to kind of coming online, we were talking about um, the pervasiveness of, of ethical failures. Um, and the danger that uh, these failures have become so commonplace that we don't think that they're failures anymore and that people take it for granted um, and are no longer outraged by these failures. So perhaps you could elaborate a little bit more. No, thank you. And thank you for all those who've uh, tuned in. Um, I thought it was uh, important to just spend a, a bit of time on a podcast talking about this. Clearly, but everyone talks about ethics and is much, it's a topic that's in the minds of many people. But at the same time, I get the sense that it's increasingly not on the minds for the reason that you've, you've pointed out. It's become so commonplace, there's so many dimensions of ethical failure that we've just taken it as the way the world is. And we're no more outraged. Um, and I just wanted to bring uh, a couple of examples that are close to, you know, are personal. Uh, and then, of course, also examples and talk about some of the things that are happening in the world that are also hugely unethical, uh, from intellectual dishonesty to financial um, dishonesty, right through to essentially people harassing others, which are all different elements of. Uh, ethical failure. So that, that's really why I thought we'd spend a few minutes um, rather than remain silent about these issues but really talk about them and try and highlight the sort of spectrum mm -hmm. of ethical failures that we are confronted with daily but about which we remain so silent because we've almost normalized it. So by ethics and these ethical failures, are you talking specifically about business ethics or is Kind of what you're thinking much broader than that? I think, I mean, all of uh, these ethical failures stem from individual uh, ethical failures, uh, whether it's in the business context, whether it's in the family context, whether it's a societal or community context, or whether it's the failing of business leaders. But f fundamentally, there are individual actions that lead to ethical failures. But of course, the way people behave is also shaped by the cultures they're brought up in, uh, the environment in which they're brought up in, and the acceptance. And I think it's important for us to call out, as I, I'm trying to do here, and I'm sure others are trying to do, that there is a normalization that is taking place uh, where people see ethical failures as a massive corruption scandal, like, like if we're in Malaysia today, it's one MDB, uh, whether it's the failing of a large multinational, etc. But those failings are essentially individual actions of small groups. So why did they become so persistent? And why have we begun to accept them? And I think that's really important to understand. So from my point of view, I just wanted to raise a couple of points. We become so accustomed to it because everyone says stays silent and it becomes the norm. 
So it, it's normal. The other dimension of, of ethical failures, I wanted to mention just, you know, an example I have, is a friend of mine who essentially, you know, someone who's on many levels almost a perfect citizen, but at the same time had a weakness with regard to a particular habit of his, I'm not going to go into the details, and then committed what he thought was an innocent crime, or not, he didn't think it was an innocent crime, he was thought it was an innocent action that would enable him to essentially uh, secure uh, the, the stability of his family, etc., and an ambition, yeah, he ended up going to prison, and then he came out. And so these kind of failings are not necessarily, I mean, they're criminal in the eyes of the law, but they're not essentially uh, criminal actions in terms of being criminalized people. So here's someone I, I thought I know well, who's a very good person, would do anything for me, yet, you know, just crossed that line, and rightfully, as it should be the case, paid the price for, for that. The question is, can he now overcome that habit he has, which essentially got him to So that's a very fine line. And then there are others where, again, it's personal to me, um, I have a house in, in Malaysia in a community where it's essentially a, a development close to the rainforest. Mm -hmm. There are lots of things that one has to do properly if one is to protect that area. Mm -hmm. There are lots of rules in, in Malaysia about these things. Uh, you can't extract river water, you can't essentially turn uh, agricultural land, into residential, into hotels and businesses, etc. But more than three quarters of the people who have bought premises there have absolutely broken every law for years. Uh, me and a few others have tried to complain to the authorities. They've turned a blind eye, mainly because they've also been paid off by the people who are running businesses. But what's most interesting to me is that these people are breaking the law on the poor village people, the Kampong people in that area. These are rich outsiders coming from Kuala Lumpur, etc., and dare I say, uh, from other foreign countries living in Malaysia, who would never even think of breaking the law in their home country and blatantly break the laws here. And they're not broken the laws without everyone knowing. Me and others have written numerous amounts of emails and complain, and they know they're breaking the law. But they, they seem so emboldened by the fact that they believe the law in this country doesn't matter. It is a tradable commodity. You can trade it, you can buy it out, enforcement is tradable, and they continue to do this. And I would say these are educated people, lawyers, doctors, engineers, all of these people. So how do they do this? They don't actually think they're breaking the law because within, in their minds, it is a viable way of doing business in a country in which they feel these things are essentially one way to essentially be commercially viable. So those are two different things that I'm very interested in seeing, that there is a complicity, and when you have this sort of complicity, you have a complete corrosion in a society because the most educated and, uh, and even well-off people will break every law for small commercial gains. We are not talking about billion-dollar businesses here either. And uh, it's interesting to see the last month that the government 
it, under the new government have started to take action. And we will see if again their desire to take action is bought out because it's tradable. So those are the things I kind of wanted to mention. So quickly, hi, um, hi, Anas M and Chris, uh, who just recently joined us. One thing I forgot to mention at the beginning, um, hold that thought, Chandran, sorry, uh, was that if you have any questions for us, um, for Chandran in particular, please kind of type them in um, and uh, we will kind of respond to you towards the end of this chat. So back to what you were saying about things like law being a tradable commodity. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? And then also then, if something like even law is a tradable commodity, how do we police this then? How do we make sure that individuals act morally or with morality and according to basic ethics? Yeah, so I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to get people who listen to this think that I'm only referring to, to Malaysia. It's a widespread phenomenon. But, uh, uh, but fundamentally, it comes from um, the society norms that are established. So when I mentioned the foreigners in this country breaking the law, uh, together with all the Malaysians, the same foreigners, say from Singapore, would not even dream of doing this in Singapore, because in Singapore, they essentially know there's a different culture, but the law is not tradable. The law is enforced to the hilt, mm -hmm. right? So you have a rule of law, which then creates a different culture. I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. I mean, in Hong Kong, there's a frenzy of media frenzy. Anyone senior in government has called to even have a small extension to their home, which breaks some bylaw within the urban planning guidelines. And that is how obsessed Hong Kong is, because you can't trade that. Yeah. So you have to have rules of law, and then which essentially start to determine the culture. But in Japan, it's very different. In Japan, it's not about the rule of law. Mm. It's the rule of culture. No Japanese person would even dream of trying to break the law. But even more interestingly, they would not create an extension to their house if they even thought that it would create a bit of a stir in the village or in their community because their whole perception is that there's a collective wellness and well-being and the individual first thing must never break the law but even within the law there are constraints within the individual can act so that it doesn't impinge on the rights of others I mean that's an extreme but that's only Japan maybe Korea too Right? So you have to have societies that start to instill these values. And when those values are not built in, then it's very difficult to create that sort of culture of conformity towards law. I would argue that Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore understood very early on that to create that culture, you have to impose very tough rules, which Lee Kuan Yew did, and some would argue it was draconian about cigarette smoking, throwing buns and chewing gum. But what it did was essentially change the culture. So quite often, you know, I'm a joke about Malaysians, the Singaporeans come to Malaysia the, over the weekend so they can taste what it's like to break the law, uh, which they can't do at home. So you need to have the, and then there's upbringing. So the last point I want to make is, in societies where it's become commonplace to see people break the law, you can understand how it becomes 
the norm. Jaywalking is the norm. Who cares? Uh, there is a sign, on a traffic sign that says no U-turn, but everyone does. So you say that's the only way to get around things, so you do it, so it becomes a norm. So imagine if you're an eight-year-old kid sitting with your parents who double park, who cross the red line, who do a U-turn, and don't think anything about, you know, not paying their bills, etc. on time. That becomes the norm for kids. And if school teachers behave the same way, don't stand the highest bar, that becomes a society. So you need to have that. And I say that internationally too now we have the norms. And of course, you know, Donald Trump's probably the heavyweight champion of the world, who has normalized the idea that you can lie, which is one of the biggest ethical failures. I mean, none of us are perfect, and some of us may occasionally tell the white lie, right? But to persistently lie is to normalize the worst sort of behavior. And he's got a huge following. So imagine the United States with the President of America as a large following who don't care that he lies at a, on the world stage. And he uses this as his trademark. So those are the kinds of things that I think we just take for granted. Now, oh, the President now said just lies. That's how it is. But, yeah, what, what, what about those people that know that he's lying and care or disagree with him? Why don't, why are people, why have people become so apathetic? Well, I think to be fair, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, and though driven by political motives in the Democratic camp, who want to take him down. Right? But I would not confuse that with uh, whether they have higher moral standards. But they certainly want to take him down, and that they're using the fact that he has, he blatantly lies as an excuse of his moral failing. Right? I'm not suggesting that they, have, that they would lie to the same degree, but they don't. But the, the point is that a lot of Americans who are opposed, but Donald Trump is likely to get re-elected because there's a lot of Americans who don't care about the lies, which tells you a lot about the society as well. So these sort of feelings, and I, coming back to Malaysia, I spoke at an anti-corruption conference three years ago and never mentioned the 1MDB scandal. I was a keynote speaker. Everyone expected me to slam the then prime minister, etc. But what I said was, all the all the all the corruption scandals in the country are essentially rooted in a collective culpability because standards are low. And then I said that collective culpability of failure is essentially resides amongst those who are the beneficiaries of education, business success, etc. Because all you need to do is go to the middle class regions of Kuala Lumpur and see how the laws are broken every minute of the day. Double parking, all extensions, people doing all kinds of silly things. These are not poor people from the villages. These are the most educated people. So when the elites break the law, they don't expect those who run the political parties in this country to not think they have a God-given right to also cheat and plunder. So then, what would you say are some of the solutions to, I don't know, if it's examples specific to Malaysia, or just... Well, the solutions is, in that, firstly, the most obvious one, is if you're an upright citizen of the city, of the country, and you see something, I'll call it out. Too many people are silent. 
Too many people are lazy. If your neighbor's breaking the law, call him up. I mean, I'm not suggesting you throw a slipper at them, <laughs> but, you know, call him up, have a conversation. If members of your family, and we all know, are having ethical failures, and ethical failures is not just about money. Uh, it's being racist. I mean, you know, being racist is an ethical failure. Discriminating people for whatever reason is an ethical failure. Being intolerant. Harassment. Not just sexual, but racial harassment, religious harassment. These are all, or even power harassment, which is a thing in Japanese corporate culture. Harassment because of authority. You need to call it out in the workplace. So that's the first one. The second, I think, starts at the home. And I think this is a wider societal issue, but it's education, but it's upbringing. And I think the third part is, of course, in countries where, you know, I compared you, Singapore and Hong Kong, is essentially having um, extremely tough rules on essentially breaches of this kind. I mean, no society would be perfect, no society would be able to do all of this, but you can reach a certain bar whereby society in general obeys the rules. No Japanese person will cross the red light at, at uh, you know, one minute to midnight on a winter cold day in Japan, even when there are no cars around. Mm -hmm. Because the culture and the society that has been instilled is if you break that glass, then you will break a lot of our glasses and the way won't come in. So they obey. And that's a cultural difference. And so you start by basic fundamentals. Okay. And if you don't have those fundamentals, then you have a, a wider erosion. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Samuel. <laughs> um, and then I guess finally, just to wrap up, um, do you have maybe three takeaways that you could share with the audience? Um, well, the three takeaways I would uh, uh, say, uh, which I mentioned, is uh, essentially, you know, firstly, watch your friends and family, uh, support them because they can make mistakes. That's my friend, made a mistake. He's not a bad person, but made a mistake, and he paid for it, right? Now the question is, will he transgress again? So we have to watch. Uh, we have to coach those people closest to us, set very high standards. If you're in charge of a company or a community, set the highest standards and demand that of others. And do not demand things of others which might lead to them needing to break certain laws to meet your requirements. That's typically in business. And thirdly, I think we should demand this in our schools all the time. And where you see lack of enforcement, call it and demand action. In coming back to Kuala Lumpur, you know, this is a fantastic city, we all love it. But all of us are party to law-breaking in this country because when we go and eat, uh, have our dinners and snacks in all those lovely coffee shops, every time some of the shopkeepers the put the tables out on the on the walkways, etc. That's illegal. Don't partake in it. Report it. Call it out. But what do most of us do? Turn a blind eye. And that's essentially what essentially corrodes the society. This will not happen in Japan. 
to be Japanese. <laughs> it's a lesson for today. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much, Chandran. Um, and thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, we didn't get any live questions today, but if you have any questions um, or comments as follow-up, please do post on our Facebook page or send us an email. We'll share our uh, general email uh, shortly after this. And uh, thank you again, and we hope to catch you next time on Facebook Live. Thank you. Bye. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program.